It's a history of football we knows about And we want to expand what we know We'll become such intelligent gentry With every kick-to-kick show Beginning in the time 1870s Right through to the modern day Tune in for Timmy Coops and the Kazman To hear what they all have to say Welcome to the Kick to Kick podcast. This is the second of three episodes on World War Two. Yeah. Um, and this episode, we were lucky enough to chat over the phone to author Roland Perry. Yeah, the uh, author of, uh, among many other books, the, the, his newer one, The Changi Brownlow. Yeah, so uh, all about Peter Chitty, uh, the Brownlow Medal, which is a really interesting story. I uh, encourage everyone else out there to read it. Absolutely, it's fantastic. So sit back and relax and enjoy. Right, Tim. Yes, Thank Roland. You. Yep. Cool. Um, I've also got Charlie here with me as well. Hi, Roland. How are you? Hello, Charlie. I'm pregnant with possibilities. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> cool. So it was a while ago you wrote this book, wasn't it? Yes, I think it came out, um, I'd have to check, two, 2012 or earlier. Anyway, something like that. It's yeah. eight years. That's Actually, it's funny you say a while ago I was thinking a few years, but it is more like eight now, yeah. Yeah. And the research went before that, so it's been yeah, a good bet, yeah, decade. I've got, I've got it in front of me. It says first published in 2010, so 10, yeah, 10 years ago. Oh, uh, yeah, 10 years, yeah. Wow. Yeah, and, and uh, yeah, so it's been around. It's been a very strong selling book. Oh, good. Going. Yeah, well, we definitely, yeah. we, we very much enjoyed reading it, Roland, so thank you for taking the time to talk to us about it. Uh, pleasure, pleasure. And who do you support? Yeah. I support Melbourne. I'm a, a long-running, suffering <laughs> demon supporter, and I was at the last win, and I saw every grand final as a, from about the age of eight oh. to... I saw their big winning streak from 55 to Roland, 64. I am, I'm a massive Melbourne fan as well, and hearing that, I'm so jealous. Yeah, that, well, I, I, was, I was at those games, except if I wasn't at 55. I mean, I, you didn't... It, you had the last quarter on television in, oh, I think they had the whole game, but anyway, I had the last quarter in 50, from 56 when the Olympics. But as a kid, I know it means a lot to adults as well, but it does mean more on the balance of things when you're young. You know, yeah. these superheroes, you know, Barassi and Bob Johnson and Laurie Mitchell oh. and all these champion footballers, they were, really were a great team. And I've had a lot of people say over the years to me, they pound for pound, they were the best team ever but look who cares <laughs> <laughs> I want to be there for the next one I know um, I know well Bruce Woodley and I are great mates he's a Melbourne supporter and uh, we're wondering whether we're going to be dead before <laughs> um, he's, 70, he's 77 I think now Bruce well, I hope he hasn't listening to this because he's <laughs> Kill me, but I think <laughs> Ron, I'm and, I'm uh, on, I'm 33, and I'm worried that I won't be alive for the next one either. So, oh, I know that's even worse. Oh my god! So there you are, Melbourne supporter, long suffering the LS, <laughs> and the short suffering. And that was a Charlie, the 33 year old, the 33. Yes, that yep. yeah, yeah. You're you're a short suffering. So <laughs> you'll see it. Yeah, hopefully. 
Yep. So what started your passion for this project about Peter Chitty and the Brownlow and the Changi Brownlow? Very simple. I'm a real Aussie Rules fan and a series fan and when I heard about the medal, a mate of mine told me that there'd been a medal struck during the war at Changi and uh, it was owned by the son of Peter Chitty. That's Roger Chitty, who's a fiery, yep. a fiery, fiery too. <laughs> <laughs> He's a great character. He's um, had great delight in running around with a book and making speeches and things. Anyway, I I got saw him. I met all the family, yep. um, except for Chitty himself, the main character, because he um, died in um, the eighties. Okay, and uh, it was the eighties, I think it was. Yeah, and. He was well gone, but that didn't matter because I had um, the next best thing was his wife, Lillian, who was able to give the female version of being back in Australia and worrying about the prisoners of war and all those sort of things. So, And then I had all the other family that I could get to, the remaining brothers and things. Wow. Uh, and it was terrific. It was, it was almost an overload of research, um, so that that was how it began, really getting together. And that medal, the Brownlow Medal from Nadine, the Changi Brownlow, is in the Australian War Memorial. I don't know if it's still on display, but it is there. It would probably be on display all the time. I think. Yeah, yeah you'd imagine so. That, yeah, that's yeah. phenomenal. So, so the family have have given it to the War Memorial to hold on to. Have they? That's correct. I hope that I don't know this honestly, but I hope Roger made a. A duplicate and keeps it. Because, yeah, uh, yeah, I'm sure he could. But it, it's a phenomenal thing, really, and that's why I wrote the story. As a look, any football fan or any sports fan would appreciate what it meant. Yes, a medal for one at in the actual prison. Um, <laughs> so, so back to the to the beginning and seeing seeing the medal for the first time, and then getting to know um, the Chitty family. And obviously, you yes. didn't get to meet meet Peter himself, but. Through hearing about his whole family, um, could you just, in yeah. a nutshell, for the people who haven't read the book, tell us a little bit about him? Yeah. Um, well, Peter was in a country boy. Actually, um, he went down to play for St Kilda in the early thirties, and he got in the team. And then he had a very bad knee injury at work. He had a packing job somewhere, and that put him out of action. Um, he had to go back to the bush essentially. But he'd played, and he'd played against some of the big names. Hayden Button and yeah. people like that and uh, Chicken Smallhorn, all those stars of that period. And he, he'd only played a couple of games with St Kilda when he had to go back to the bush. Yeah. Um, and he was a bushy, you know, working on the land at, at, um, uh, near the foot of Mount Kosciuszko. Some okay. people will know the, yep. the whole area there. And he, um, he just joined up as an ambulance driver. He was sort of... Um, Against fight, not against fighting, but he didn't want to kill people. He wanted to save people. He was just built that way. Yep. And um, he joined up and was went over with the Eighth Division. We had um, five divisions in World War One, and we had uh, four, three or four, four in World War Two. Yep. And he was Eighth Division, which was sent to fight the Japanese, basically in Singapore. Yeah. And they were captured by the Japanese. Uh, they didn't. None of them wanted to be captured, but the British Army in charge said we have to capitulate. 
mainly because the Japanese bombed the hell out of the hospitals and everything in Singapore, and oh. it was a matter of civilians versus capitulation. Okay, yeah, all right, interesting. And our blokes were really well trained, as they were in World War One, and would have continued on fighting. Uh, and it, look, it was badly. No, I don't want to blame the old, the poor old Poms, they cop it a lot. <laughs> but it, it, was, it was not managed well, put it that way, and uh, 25,000 of our blokes were captured of nearly 80,000 uh, British troops, including yep. Indians and so forth, and Gurkhas. Yeah. And Chitty was one of them, and there were 80,000 in the uh, Changi camp, and, of course, the Japanese let them carry on with sport and stuff, things like that. They were in, in the captivity, uh, and they couldn't escape. It was very difficult to escape. If you did try, you were decapitated, you were um, killed straight away, and so it was a, it was very difficult to get out of the place. A few did. Yeah. A few got away. Um, we're talking of a few, a handful of about 80,000. <laughs> yeah. Uh, went overland. I mean, I know that terrain pretty well now. If you get into Thailand and places like that, uh, and I, I'm having living there. I often think when I'm driving along somewhere, how difficult it would have been had they been free, because the jungle is thick. It's really thick. Yes. Now they go in sort of five meters, and you can't move any further. So our blokes would have been faced with that. Plus, nowhere to go. India would have been the place to go. <laughs> um, so they were stuck there. And sport in the first year was quite strong. There were all sports played: baseball, cricket. There was Ashes games between Australians and England. But the big competition that really took everyone was the Aussie Rules competition. Killed and, everything. And when, you say, when you say first year, Roland, what year was that? 1942. Yeah. They were captured on February. They were officially POWs on the 15th of February, 1942. So the first year was when a competition began. There were six clubs involved, um, but they were... Where it was really interesting was that it was players from all over Australia were, the, were in the Changi. Yeah. So it was more like AFL yeah. than VFL. <laughs> the original. So, the, yeah. <laughs> so the standard, the standard of the games on occasions, particularly the last game, which was Victoria versus the rest, was easily up to an AFL standard. Now, if you allow for the years and the change and the everything, you know. Yeah, it was yeah, an AFL-style game. It was a huge game, the last game uh, that was played. And that was in 1943, in April. They, The Japanese were closing down all the sports because they wanted the blokes fit for their slaving on the Thai-Burma railway. Oh, yeah. There was a railway being built into Burma, 420 kilometres long, yeah. which was going to save them being uh, killed, the Japanese, on the seas because our... Through our uh, ships and the Americans, of course, were beginning to sink them all around yeah. the area. So they had to go overland, yep. and they needed slaves to build it. And oddly enough, we lost a lot of men in that whole process. But the Thais, which really surprised me when I was doing research, and I sort of understand more living there, 100,000 of them at least died building wow. that road. Oh and they don't know. People go blank when I talk about it. I, I squeezed a bit when I was doing research out of people, but really, the, the, it's just another war for them. Another, yeah, it's not because they've not been fighting the Burmese the and the, on one side and the Cambodians on the other for centuries. So this was not a big deal in the scheme of things for them. But a hundred thousand is still a hundred thousand people. Yes. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Wow. 
Um, so you, you mentioned before they sort of um, they they lock them up, but they sort of let them do their own thing. Um, yeah. How? Because yeah, that was one of my questions. Was was sort of how did they get the um, competition up and running um, when they were prisoners? So yeah. how did it work? Well, they let them they let them loose. Mainly our own. They let our own uh, military leaders, the generals in the and so forth, in the prison. Now, they were prisoners of war and medicos run the whole run the prisoners yeah uh, the japanese were there obviously running the place they had uh, a, a lot of so- a lot of soldiers who were guarding the place with korean soldiers as well so they just they didn't know what to do Eighty thousand prisoners um they had a bit of contempt for them because their attitude was to die for the emperor yeah. and all this stuff going on now blokes um uh were captured and that was uh, the attitude was, well, you're a prisoner of war rather than kill yourself for the emperor. Well, our emperor was in London, and uh, yeah. but I don't think any of our blokes wanted to die. <laughs> no. Our emperor, you see. So they let it run, and the Aussie rules guys were just better organised. Chicken Smallhorn was one. Peter Chitty was another. There were several who organised the six teams. They had, they did took a hell of a lot of risks in setting it up, and I. It killed me when I was doing the research. They used to get out of the prison at night in the food vans and things, uh, illegally, of course. I mean, they were yeah. again, they would have been seen as... And they went into the middle of the jungle to get to kill wild boar. The, the Chinese traders, yeah. the Chinese were very much on our side. We've got to understand that at this yep. point. They hated the Japanese because of what they were doing. In China, course, yeah. In China, because 15 million... Chinese were murdered and slaughtered by the um, Japanese military the in World War II. Yeah. People forget that number. You know, think of it. That's why the grandfather, the grandsons now running China have still have a great hate for the Japanese. Yeah. There's a lot of feeling there still. That won't change for the two generations. Yeah. Anyway, our blokes were given rifle, taken in the middle. They shot wild boar to get the, um, the leather for the football. They had rubber for the bladders from the plantation plantations, rubber plantations all around Singapore. Wow. Uh, and they had seamstresses make up the uh, Guernseys in um, the jumpers in Singapore, ta- in, um, in in Chang... Sorry, where are we? Chang- yeah, yeah, yeah. In, yeah, in Singapore. So-, so In Singapore. So they were... They were they organised it incredibly well and they marked out uh, a rugby pitch in the middle, of, which was used by um, the former... Scottish uh, troops that were there, mm-hmm. yep. uh, and that was the, the basis for the pitch. They got the um, goalposts were bamboo trees, basically, yep. you know, straight trees they got, the yep. right size and everything. So it was a very well-organised uh, situation, and there were... Um, it sounds... Yeah, it. there were 16, to say. So, and it drew big crowds. That's what amazed me reading it. There were a couple of journalistic reports. I was very, you know... Writers, when you get hold of that material and you go, oh, this is gold. It didn't have um, hardball gets, but it had a lot of good stuff. <laughs> oh, fantastic. On, on the games, particularly the final game. So I was able to, um, you know, reconstruct that final. It was like reading the old Sporting Globe and the, yeah. the yeah. pink comic. It was oh, wow. Every, so it, was, it gave me a, a wonderful material for the book to reconstruct some of the games, particularly the big final game, Victoria versus the Red. Yeah. So it, it does really sound like they were left to their own devices if they're, you know, showing up with a with a football and jersey sewed and the, <laughs> and the, uh, the 
yeah, they the top were. brass the aren't Japanese really asking realized, any questions. Yeah, they didn't. They realised they they knew the rules. The prisoners of war knew the rules. They would be uh, executed if they yeah. tried to escape. So they had barbed wire and cap, and of course, but it, the blokes knew. You know, they were taking big risks. They yeah. went outside. So, re- so really, the only rule was don't try to escape, otherwise we'll kill you, and whatever you do inside is kind of up to you. That is correct. It wasn't as bad, and this is, you know, one of the myths, of course. It was pretty bad to be isolated in the place anyway. Yeah. And the food was getting less and less in terms of nutrition. Uh, but it wasn't nearly as bad as being on the railway, on the Burma Thai yeah, Railway, yes, where Chitty's contingent of 6,000 um, there were 3,000 Englishmen and 3,000 Australians. 50% of them were dead in three months. Wow. So you've got... That attrition rate is just unheard of unless you drop a bomb on something. Yeah. Uh, so it was pretty tough on the railway, and a lot of them came back with disease and injuries that they never recovered from. Yeah, A lot of, of them, you know, malaria was one, for example. You know, a lot of a lot of blokes up in those uh, the islands and... Uh, in that region got malaria. Uh, my father was fighting in New Guinea against Japanese. He had malaria. So it's, um, you know, they they really suffered on the road much more. That's building the Burma Thai Railway, mm. Railway much more than they did in the prison. In the prison itself, yeah. However, when they were sent back to the prison, and they were then one, two, three, 42, 43, 44 years, three years in captivity, it was beginning to show a lot of them in terms of their mental and physical degradation. Yeah. And so there were lots of issues in the camp in Changi after the railway had been built. Yeah. So it was downhill. And you saw the emaciated prisoners after the war. Everyone seen shots of them. That's what happened to them if they couldn't get food. You know, a lot of them came out half their weight. Chitty was an absolute freak. He was a bushy who could live off the bush. Yeah. He was amazing. And he came back actually a kilogram heavier, I think, than he went in. Oh, wow. So that guy, you know, I mean, it was, he knew what to eat. He knew how to look after himself. He was incredibly fit. He was an uber-fit character. Wasn't he? he was running he, to school every day. Yeah, that's right. He ran a he ran a marathon almost every day, didn't he? Yeah. And, and the thing is, you watch these survivor programs, and I occasionally laugh to myself looking at them because he would have slaughtered all of them. I mean, he was so fit. I mean, he carried one prisoner, prisoner uh, mate on his back, a guy called Downey, Jim Downey, uh, 300 kilometres on his back. Um, and he, his body weight was slightly more than Chitty. So he oh. had the two packs and this guy on his back for the best part of 300 kilometres to get medical assistance. Wow. Is that what he was given the British Empire Medal for? Well, it was one reason. He was such a selfless so-and-so. He was known everywhere as looking after other people. You know, his, his whole instinct was to, to look after people. Um, even Japanese prisoners that came in, they had to do it anyway, but he he was chided by some of the other uh, the, uh, the Australians during the war itself, during the battle. He was chided for helping them. He said, it's our duty to help people. We don't care who they are, you know, that, that sort of thing. But he had this selfless attitude, and it was, that was the standout that everyone knew about. But he got those medals were only given out, I think 12 were given out during the entire war. So he got one uh, for his selfless approach to everything, really, yeah. and his inspiration to others. Wow. 
Mm. Um, so the football competition that was run in Changi wasn't wasn't exactly the same rules they were used to. Um, they had to modify them a little bit. Not really. No, there was no uh, there was no change. They had uh, Chicken Smallhorn who won the Brownlow Medal in '33, if I remember, yep. yeah. uh, for Fitzroy. He uh, was the key umpire, and they stuck pretty well the rules. It was uh, the same amount of time on the field and so forth. Um, and uh, they had not only 19th and 20th men, of course, in those days. Yeah. Uh, one of the amusing things, if they wanted to trade players, um, uh, a player would go to another club for um, an extra bowl of, uh, <laughs> of, of rice and vegetables, things like that. Yeah, but so, and Chicken Smallhorn was quite a strict umpire because if there was any rough housing, the Japanese yeah. guards would get involved. Yeah, well, that's right. You, you've obviously read the, the, the bit there, and Chicken... Um, knew that if there was a riot, there was a lot of disgruntlement amongst the prisoners, and they were on. They were massed together. Yeah. You know, in the final game, look at some reports said twelve thousand, others said eight. I went for the medium of ten. One report said about ten. You got ten thousand prisoners fairly packed in because it wasn't a huge space around the rugby oval. Yeah. You had um, machine guns placed in high positions around the ground, machine gunners, Japanese. Uh, there were soldiers, guards on towers looking down into the game. If there'd been a riot, they would have had an excuse just to mow them down. Yeah, and you'd imagine, you know, emotions would be running high, you know. Well, they it, were, yeah. and there was, it was, you know, barracking for teams and so forth. It was, there was that feeling, uh, there was a lot of angst uh, amongst the prisoners because they were fairly ticked off after a year in captivity at yeah. that stage in April 43. So... Chicken kept a real heavy lid on it, and um, players were reported and so forth and dropped from games and things like that. There was a real that. tribunal. That's yeah, phenomenal. that's right. There was, there was a tribunal, correct. It was taken all very seriously. Yeah, that's, uh, fa- that's fantastic. And, and it worked. It worked. I mean, to get ten, just imagine 10,000 prisoners of war being uh, walking from their uh, prison guard area, guard area to the ground. Uh, the Japanese really sent a lot of guards out on that day, the final day, because they were worrying, A, there'd be a riot, and B, that there might be a mass attempt to escape as well. Yeah. But that didn't happen. Mm. Um, so which, what team did uh, Peter Chitty play for? Now, he, oh, now you've got me. Was, <laughs> he was, was, it, was he, he the captain he, of Geelong? No, he played, he, he went, uh, it was Geelong, I think, because he'd played for St Kilda in the real, yeah. um, the real competition. Yeah, I think he did. Go to Geelong. Yeah, I'm, there was Geelong and Melbourne, Collingwood, Essendon. There was about six of them. Yeah, I think they were all, um, from what I've read, they were all vying for his um, services and he kind of yeah, put well, in I, a few different... That's right, and there were quite a few stars playing uh, from other states and so forth. Uh, the interesting thing is that not many of them went on. I don't think any of them went on to higher competition after the war. Ah, oh, OK. Because they were either injured or belted you know, malnutrition had weakened them to such an extent. Remember, they were all away four or five years, so these guys, if they started at 21, 22 or 27, they had to get work when they came back. Yeah. They couldn't afford to do that. So my reading of it, and someone on you who listened to your podcast will say, oh, he's wrong, there was Joe Bloggs in South Australia. That's, yeah, we're, we're very know. used to that. <laughs> yeah. What's are you? Yeah. Good. Well, that means people are listening. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, he, uh, I didn't find any. I did look at it briefly after I'd done the book. I yeah. thought I'd just interested to see. But 
from what I could see, uh, no, there weren't any. And, of course, Chitty himself after that, well, I blame it on the monumental carrying of uh, Jim Downey. <laughs> um, yeah, because he had stash. a bad back after that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, you know, with back, we've all had some back problem oh, in yeah. our lives. <laughs> yeah, you Even a 33-year-old yeah. had it. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't often manifest till weeks afterwards. Suddenly, oop, you're gone. And, you know, you can trace it back to a gym movement or something you've done. Now, Chitty had such a back problem, he couldn't even do manual labour properly after yeah. the war. So, so he, he suffered from that effort. Can I just tell you one little story? It was a beautiful oh, story. please. I was speaking about Changi Brownlow at the um, shrine uh, only probably six years ago now, and a family came down. Well, I say a family. I didn't know they were until they came down down after I'd finished and introduced themselves, and there were eight of them, and they were quite emotional. And I wondered, you know, what's happening here? And they said, oh, look, we're the family of Jim Downey, oh. and we want to thank you for giving us closure on what happened to him. Oh, wow. Because no one had said who this guy was that was carried by Chitty and where his grave was. Now, that's what the book did. I did... You know, you'd do that automatically. I couldn't. I didn't want to just leave it as a prisoner. Yeah. I wanted it, the name. And so I was suddenly very aware because there were nieces of the man who were in their 50s and things like that who were crying and, and thankful that something had been done about him, you know, that they could then and possibly even go up onto the row and find where he had been, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, um, that's that's and, that's such a phenomenal um, experience to have and to oh, see that well, it, it taught, personally it touched people. Yeah, so I mean, speaking of uh, in a different way, you know, getting those um, records, you know, personal yeah. records of people. Um, we've we've read that P that Peter Chitty had a collection of handwritten notes on all the games that he played and watched. Um, did you have a chance at all to see any of those? Yeah, I saw everything that he'd done, but oh, the. Wow. The main accounts of the games were two journalists inside the prison um, who were not named, actually. I just I got all the files. The Chitty family gave me some. I got some out of the Australian War Memorial. There was some, I think, with the AFL. I certainly um, uh, had got into the AFL files and um, uh, had the big chief then, the big, tall, former Carlton player, uh, Michael. Uh, Mike Fitzpatrick. Fitzpatrick, Fitzo, he did the uh, launch of the book. He was terrific, came along and launched the book. So uh, that, that was all helpful. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I hope he doesn't listen to that and me forgetting his name. <laughs> no. <laughs> we, gave, we gave him a bottle of scotch, I think. That <laughs> but so so the main, um, the main source for you getting the information about the actual games was from the journalists, but they're, yeah. they're a oh, lot the of... the games itself. Yeah. yeah, yeah, the games itself, yeah. And, the, and, and the, the stuff that you got from the family just um, added to the, the story of Peter. Is that right? Yeah, well, yeah, but you've got all the... I spoke to probably 30 POWs. At, uh, wow. Got them, wow. I got them at the end of their lives, to be brutal about it. They're yeah. all gone now. I think one or two in their 90s are left. And it was quite amazing, Tim and Charlie. It's, an, it's incredible. I suppose it's your, partly your manner... You guys would be okay, I think. You're not, you know, you've got the right attitude. Um, I elicited stuff that they'd never spoken about, and it was funny because I'm talking—not funny, but it was sort of um, interesting. Dramatic. Yeah. I was talking to a couple of old blokes 
on the phone and it happened twice in different ways. Uh, one guy, I couldn't see him, of course. He was divulging stuff to me and he, his wife suddenly, suddenly took over the phone and said, look, Roland, could you please call back tomorrow? He's getting a little bit excited about what's being said. He, yeah. You know, and I thought, oh, gee, I couldn't see it. So you could only hear his voice. Yeah, of course. And so they, they were divulging stuff they'd never even touched wow. for a long time. And because it was traumatic for them to be uh, on the road with all the death. I mean, the cholera camp, which I describe in the oh, book, yeah, is, uh, you know, yeah. you just think about that being in, a, in that cholera camp. And, yeah. and um, yeah. that marvellous... Yeah, go on, sorry. No, I, I get, I'm just saying you can imagine these guys coming back from that terrible ordeal and just thinking, I can, you know, I need to leave this in the past and move on. And so dredging well, it back up is, yeah. Yeah, a lot of them didn't. A lot of them did have, even Chitty had major issues. Um, I think he was in his late 70s and he went into hospital for a heart operation and he woke up and he... He called, I think he called for a weapon or he, he thought the Japanese were, that's right, the Japanese were invading the hospital. Yep. Yes. Now, uh, you know, he, he had a traumatic experience then and this was the toughest of the tough, both mentally and physically, yeah. who obviously had uh, an issue at that moment, you know. So they all suffered enormously because being an ambulance driver, he would have seen a lot more than... Uh, the, the average POW because he would have been out there in the field all the time as he was mm. and then he kept on going with it um, during the actual captivity so yeah it does it does stick with them a lot of them could cauterize their brains but sometimes you know the timing is right with that. no wow it's am it's amazing and it's a generational thing as well isn't it of of yes. people feeling you know that you you know it's not right for men to have those emotions and show them um, that's you know exactly right you yeah. hit it on the head there was never any um counseling at all world war one and world war two as far as i know world war two even yeah um they, there just wasn't counselling. There wasn't much. The poor blokes that came back from Vietnam, they were pilloried and, you know, yeah. ridiculed and reviled, and they had nothing, and they suffered a long time uh, unnecessarily uh, for what they were doing for their country, as they thought, you know, the government had sent them to war, and uh, that was terrible. And they, they had mental scars for a long time, those oh. blokes. Yeah, you can, you can imagine. Um, yeah. the, so... Obviously, sport is a huge part of uh, who we are as Australians, and it's you know written into the tapestry of our history. Um, yeah. Did do you think that having this competition, running it at Changi, uh, was really important for those guys who were there in terms of keeping up morale and those sorts of things as well? Oh yeah, this was vital. Uh, there was not only for the players; the players were you know they had something to do for that first year. But the fact that they got lots of people going to the game, it was almost a Saturday afternoon normalcy for them. Yeah. They weren't all played on a Saturday afternoon, but they, they had that element. They were allowed to go and watch the game, even though the, you know, the games were surrounded by machine gunners and snipers and things like that. <laughs> they had that normalcy, and, and it was terrific for them. Because Chitty was given the Brownlow medal on the morning of the game, um, uh, the Victoria versus the rest, you know, in front of a huge crowd. So that that normalcy for them was very important for their morale. And as Chitty said, he was interviewed by Ron Barassi not long before 
Chitty died, he said, um, Ron asked him about a similar question. He said, look, um, we showed them they might break our bodies, but they'll never break our spirit. Yeah, yeah. amazing, what isn't a it? Great it's... line, you know, yeah. a great line. You think about it. It was true. There was one other line from one of the guys about to be decapitated who tried to escape. Um, I have it in the book. And he, the Japanese, uh, he said to him just before he's about to lose his head, he says, uh, any last words? He said, yeah, I just want to tell you that uh, there are many more like me where I come from. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. Which was it? Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't said with any um, viciousness, but he was just reminding the Japanese that they were going to be in for a long war. Yeah, just that just that, and, me- that uh, mental yeah. strength. And, wow. Yeah, and that to the Japanese was terribly important for them to show that face at the finish. I don't think it's necessary for everyone to show face when you're about to head your head, no. head removed, but this particular guy did, and that was the spirit, they couldn't understand the mentality that these blokes were in prison and they were, they could be cheerful and yeah. they had all sorts of, you know, competitions. From, there was a university running in Changi. You've got to know that. Yeah. They had, oh, well, you know, they had people who knew anything about anything would get up and speak, whether it was a doctor or whatever. You know, it was quite amazing that they kept, they kept, um, you've got to, it's like this time now in isolation. You have to have plans for the day. That's you know, you're working, you guys, you've got the normal program. Yeah. But a lot of people are a bit flummoxed by what do I do now, you know. Maintaining structure and positivity and, yeah, yeah right. it's, and it's so important fit. for your mental health. Yeah, that's right. And people don't quite grasp but I, we're beginning to see figures of um, those coming out with violence in the home and yeah. uh, depression. Psychologists are saying that they've got more clients than they've ever had in their lives, more patients. Um, and so there's an inkling for a lot of people of what those blokes went through in, in POW camps during World War II. Mm. And Chitty's two brothers were in German Stalags. They were captured um, in Greece. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, they were captured in Greece. They were fighting there with the 6th Division, I mm. think it was, yeah. They were captured there and... Um, they were they got they were they got back to Australia okay. There was exchange of prisoners late in forty four and they were taken back here. But I think the most uh, surprising and shocking one was the youngest one, Dick, who Dick Chitty, who turned uh, there were about eleven of the family and even two of the women in the family served, but Dick oh, wow. was suddenly called up at eighteen. He well he wanted to. He wanted to go in straight away. He went to a nice little place in New South Wales called Cowra. I think some of you probably know what's coming. Yeah. And he was a guard there. On the first day he was there, the first night, it was a prisoner camp for Japanese and Italians. Uh, there was, a, there was a, an attempt to escape, and uh, he ended up chasing Japanese uh, around the town and the surrounding country. And he was killing Japanese prisoners. They had to because they were they had weapons. Some of them, and they were they were defending themselves. So there was poor old poor young Dick who was eighteen was straight into the action. Oh my God! Yeah, that's... and Toxa Toxa died. Uh, his nickname was Toxa Chitty. He was the most equipped uh, sportsman in the family. He was killed in action at El Alamein yeah. in Libya. So he um, he uh, he got uh, killed there. He's People who saw it said he should have got a VC. I don't think he got anything in the end. I think he got a special mention of some sort. Um, and, of course, there was Bob Chitty, which you were going to ask me about. 
Yes, of course. <laughs> um, <laughs> Bob, Bob was captain of Carlton. Yes. And uh, the Blues management, for what it's worth, kept made sure they didn't go to war because they wanted to win a flag. <laughs> and he was captain of the 1945 bloodbath team against yep. the Swans. And Carlton won the flag in 45, mainly because of uh, Bob, Chitty. Bob Chitty's leadership, yes. Yeah. One of my mates who was a philosopher now, long gone, but he um, was a mad Carlton fan, and he said, yeah, he was a real thug. And then he said, but he was our thug. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> you, can, you can forgive it when they're wearing your colours, can't you? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> and he looked, he said, he also said there weren't many laughs in him. But <laughs> 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 it was a good commentary on a player, Jack Dyer, but Jack Dyer had quite a few laughs in him. He yeah. was frightened of Chitty. He said, uh, the only... Uh, play a person who played Ned Kelly who didn't need armour because at one point Chitty was uh, playing in some role, uh, some small role playing Ned Kelly. And, oh, really? Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and Ty said... He didn't need armour. Didn't, didn't need armour. <laughs> I love that. That's fantastic. <laughs> that, didn't that Jack? He was so <laughs> yeah. Wonderful fella. Roland, were there any right. challenges in writing this book? None. None? <laughs> None. Look, um... You see how easy it was. There was a lot of information to go through. You know, your yeah. research takes months and months and months and months. Uh, the only challenges were the tough terrain in Thailand occasionally, but, I mean, that's minor compared to um, other things I've had to do and, yeah. and what the prisoners went through in, in the hitch. Trying to find the actual campsites did, didn't succeed all the time because there's just water, lakes and things all over them now from the along the Thai-Burma Railway oh. into Thailand. It went right into Burma looking for information and um, and the camps. So uh, to me, um, it was a doddle. I mean, I enjoyed the research. It was It's bloody hot there. It's about 40 degrees right there now um, yeah. in that region. And that but humidity as well. It's very, yeah, it's odd. You've got to look after yourself. Get a, we were, I had a mate who was a photographer with me, um, we were getting up five o'clock in the morning to start trekking wherever we had to go um, and to make sure that it was all done by noon, you know, otherwise yeah, of you course, were, you were of course. flat. But really, uh, a most enjoyable exercise uh, in, in every respect. It was a, a terrific book yeah. to write, a very positive story in the finish with someone like Chitty. I would not have done this story, boys, if... It hadn't have been cheap. I would not have been. You had, to me, you had to have something to cling on to. It was yeah. his survival instincts, the way he carried himself, what he did. There were lots of people who were worthy doctors on the, you know, there were a dozen fantastic doctors, not just oh, William yeah. Dunlop, but there were lots of doctors uh, who had done, who did enormous things. And, of course, the interesting thing for anyone listening to this is that doctors took over the whole running of the show, a bit like you're seeing in America with Dr. Fauci and, and uh, Trump. Trump stands aside, lets this guy run the show because the doctors know more about yeah. what's happening. And, and it's not, it's a different war. It's a war against disease. Yeah. And uh, they had to fight the cholera and malaria and everything and look after the men. And that's, so the doctors are fantastic. But, and I learned that in the way through. I wouldn't have, I didn't know it as well as I did once I got into it. But to get into it, I needed a chitty because it's a pretty horrific tale without yeah. the positive mentality yeah. and the humour as well, which is very important, as you see, started through the book. 
Yeah. It is a, it, the comedy of these blokes kept up all the time. That's oh, when, when they give the emperor the uh, the, the three cheers. Oh, that was that was absolutely fantastic, wasn't it? Yeah. That, 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 we won't relay that anecdote, <laughs> but it's um, <laughs> yes, the, the saying farewell to the emperor. Yeah, um, yeah, that sort of thing. Uh, that was a very Aussie, and of course, yeah, had that... the Japanese known uh, the, the Mickey was being taken yeah. such, <laughs> to such an extent, there would have been people definitely decapitated, yeah. but they had no idea it was happening. <laughs> That yeah, that la- that larrikinism was is such a huge trait that that shines through definitely. Oh, definitely, and it kept them going, and uh, they needed everything. Uh, but when you see someone like Chitty, that's why he was the key to the narrative for me. As I said, I would never mm. have got into the story, even though there's tremendous. Oh yeah, there's tremendous tales of other people in it, you know, without Judy. Yeah, but there's a, yeah, you just need that that one person that sort of creates the pathway to to tell the other stories, don't you? That's it. Yeah. And, uh, it it's something I thought, oh, do I need to go through the pain of all that? But <laughs> when uh, I would never have done it, as I say, but when the the Brownlow gave it another edge as well, of yeah. Course. I was, I was going to say as well, Roland, I, I imagine actually being there and walking the trail. I mean, I know it's, it's as you said, it's totally different to the way it was for them and how it was. But it just, rather than just reading about it, actually being there and feeling it and seeing it just creates this whole other level of respect and understanding for what those guys oh, went through. No, I, I saw all the grave sites along the way, which is pretty harrowing stuff. Mm. I had. I found a relative at Kanchanaburi, um, and uh, that was a telling moment. Uh, I remember it being a very hot day, and the, the woman who was with me said um, she was standing in the shade, and she said um, she was a guide. And I said, uh, she said, you spent a lot of time out there. And I said, yeah, I found a relative there that I knew was here. Uh, and it does touch you because Kanchanaburi was the staging post for them going forward onto the railway and also coming back. Yeah. So a lot of them were... A lot of them died in the actual camp on the way home because the relief, I would just suspect, yeah. partly the relief of actually coming through the hell yeah. that they'd been through and then they just collapsed, you know, there and then in Kanjanaburi. It's a vast grave. It's worth a visit for anyone who yeah. does go to Thailand. It's a beautiful country to visit. Um, Phenomenal. And to live in, in my case, I love yeah. it there. Uh, not, not as great as Oz, but it's number <laughs> two for me. Um, it is worth a visit to Canterbury primarily. Uh, there are lots of other places that if you read the book that are, that are well marked and named if you were following um, following where they went into Burma, you know, the, um, right through and the 420-kilometre railway. Uh, lots of the railway isn't there. They do have sort of uh, reconstructions of it. Um, yeah. the, the bridge on the River Kwai is a... Uh, a reconstruction that was never the bridge, but they did it for... After the film came out in 1957, yeah. Bridge Over the River Kwai, they actually built the bridge. a bridge over the River Kwai. <laughs> so people had a place to visit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's, that's right. You know, sharp activity by the, the Thai tourism board, I would think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, Ron, what... Just kind of to finish off, what's the lasting legacy of Peter Chitty, in your opinion? Um, well, yeah, that... I think that he represented, um, and the medal is a good, a good base for that. He represented the spirit of the Anzac right there in that terrible moment and uh, of time. And he, what you know, you you ask about people ask me about, oh, is the brother of Bob? Is, is he any relation to Bob Chitty? 
one of the aims of the book was to have people say, oh, Peter Chitty, did he have a brother? Yeah, or, you know, flip, the other flip way it around, on its head. I haven't, yeah. I haven't, won, I haven't won the battle. Yeah. Yeah. Peter, Peter, Peter Chitty, only a movie will do that, and yeah. then Bob will be extinguished in terms of the Chitty family, uh, in terms of number one. Yeah. Uh, Bob is the name that everyone knows because he led the Blues in the biggest you know, battle of a grand final, bloodbath on the ground and everything, even... 90s man jumping the fence and everything. <laughs> <you know? laughs> Not jumping the fence, but diving in and everyone was in. That, that's what he'll be, he's remembered for. He won a flag for the Blues. Um, but Peter Chitty is a much bigger character in every respect and uh, that's the aim of the book and hopefully a movie to follow at some point. Yeah. And he represented the Anzac spirit in extremis. Yeah, in absolutely. every respect, you know, the, the, especially the selfless uh, part of it, which Ron, we, has, we all witness. Has there been any talk from the AFL about including him as an actual Brownlow medalist? Cause... What a good question, and I don't know that. I could probably find out from Roger. I, I've spoken to Roger not too long ago because um, uh, it's 10 years since the whole research yeah. period, and he's out fighting fires. I'm just sitting in a room <laughs> yeah. writing books, you know. But uh, I, he would know. Um, I don't think there has been, but what a wonderful idea because no medal was struck no. in actuality in that year and it might be a very good ceremonial thing to say, right, we recognise... Recognise that, yeah, the 1942 Brownlow was won I'm glad I thought of that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, uh, well, as we've been talking about it, I've been thinking, you know, there is... We've got the Anzac Day medal. Why Why isn't it named, the you know, the Peter Chitty well, medal? Or, it should be. It should be. Like that's that. a very... That yeah. is a... That's a point that's come up, and I quite agree with that. Mm. That would be a marvellous... Uh, way to, to acknowledge what had been achieved, well, not only by Chitty himself, but what they went through. See, a lot of the 8th Division were... Um, they weren't treated as badly as our Viet vets, yeah. but they weren't treated well because they were POWs. So yes. people said, oh, you didn't fight. You didn't actually you were, fight, yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. they did fight no, for yeah, quite course. a while, but, yeah. but you're right. It was You're in prison, you know, and, that, and Chitty went through a lot of uh, soul-searching after realising that people said, oh, you haven't been through much, you've just been in a prison. Mm. And so that would be a good way of, of evening up that whole mentality about what they thought happened to them. Although a lot of people wouldn't think about it today, um, but, uh, you know, think about the fact that they were just POWs. We understand yeah. what, what what went on Far better a lot better. Understanding. Yeah. 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 yeah, but no, that's a very... Good thought, and I will raise it en route to the film. Well, we will really too. We're more than happy to sign any peti petitions that you start, Roland, as well. Good on you. <laughs> that's beautiful. <laughs> yes. Oh, that's great. That's great. Um, Roland, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. We really appreciate hearing all your stories about um, Peter Chitty and the writing of the book. Yeah, thank you, gentlemen. Thank it's you, uh, uh, Tim and Charlie. It's really great to talk to you, and... Uh, Thank you so much. I did enjoy that. I thank really you, don't. Roland. Oh, thank you, Roland. It was fantastic. Yep. And oh, for okay. anyone who hasn't read it, get onto the Changi Brownlow. It is a fantastic book, and they they should be reading it. Mm. Absolutely. 
So on reflection, that was a really great chat, wasn't it, Charlie? Yeah, phenomenal. And just just his uh, wealth of knowledge on on that subject is just is huge, and just nice to have that time. And we so we so appreciative of the time that he spent with us to go into all that de- that depth and detail and and tell us these stories that a lot of people don't know. Yeah, and I think one thing we we should do, as as we mentioned at the end of that episode, was. You know, I reckon we push for Peter Chitty to be an official Brownlow medalist. Absolutely. On this show, he is. Yeah, yeah, we, we definitely. That. Um, so thank you for listening. Um, we will have episode three out shortly. To find out more about the Kick to Kick team and the sources we use, visit our website, www.kicktokickpodcast.com. You can contact us via email at kicktokickpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter and Instagram under at kick to kick pod Thanks so much for listening.